Well, good morning and welcome to Water and Stone. My name is Dieter Randolph and uh, here we are again. You know, it's an amazing thing how quickly a week goes by, even if you're stuck at home. But I'm glad to be home with you on this day because this represents another transition moment. You know, obviously, we've just had our, our Easter experience, and we've had a little bit of a chance to, to take a quick look at some of the key moments in the story and teachings of Jesus. And boy, there's so much more to say, but I like what we did say. And I like what you said in response to it. Thanks again, as always, for your feedback. But now, we're getting ready to talk about Paul. Now, that's an interesting thing. I don't know where you... Uh, grew up, I don't know where you went to church as a kid and all that, but when I mention Paul to some people, some people have a real problem with it because some of the most challenging, let's say, passages that people quote to justify some challenging behavior come from Paul. Now, we've got a lot to say about all of that, but before we can do that, before we can start talking about the letters, for example, which really are like reading somebody else's mail, before we can talk about those kinds of things, we need to talk about the person. What happens to Paul to have this be uh, an important character in the scripture? I mean, it's, it's very tempting to go, okay, I get the Jesus thing. Who's this guy, right? Well, today's conversation, today's lesson is going to in part be, I'll tell you why this guy. But more than that, I'll tell you why this is an important story for you. Today we're going to be talking about the conversion. His name is Saul, and he becomes Paul. A lot of other things change along the way, and I don't know about you, but there are definitely times in my life when what I require is a deep and profound change. Some people fear that change moment. Some people long for it, and most people are somewhere in between. But almost always, if you're feeling stuck, you need some kind of a conversion, some kind of a moment of transition. And this is one of the biggest and best examples in the Bible of a story of transition. So let's embrace the change as we begin with our opening prayer. God is and I am. I stand on holy ground. Right here and right now, there is truth. Right here and right now, there is freedom. Right here and right now, there is life. This is who I am. I am ready. From now on, I speak the truth. From now on, I choose freedom. From now on, this is my life. The unstoppable love of God prepares the way. I am ready ready. And so it is, and so it does in Jesus' name. Amen. So, this is the uh, conversion of Saul into Paul. And you can find it in the book of Acts, chapter 9, verses 1 through 19. That's a short passage. It's, it's, it's tiny, but incredibly uh, pivotal. I mean, certainly pivotal for Paul, obviously. The guy... Uh, becomes a different person, changes his name, uh, changes gears completely in his life. It's certainly pivotal for Paul, Saul slash Paul, but more than that, for, for Christianity as a movement. You could argue that it's not a movement yet until Paul. It's something else, right? Paul is the one who makes this happen. I mean, 
we wouldn't be here talking about Christian theology in this church that we have made together. We wouldn't be here, obviously, without the life and teachings of Jesus Christ. But we also wouldn't be here without the life and work of Paul. It's a little bit like uh, Jesus is the, this is, I'm making it much smaller than it is, but just to give you a for instance, it's a little bit like Jesus invented Coca-Cola, but Paul is the one that builds the bottling plants, right? Obviously, <laughs> there's a little bit more to the story than a soft drink, but you get the idea. There's something really important that, that goes on here. It's interesting to think about this on a literary basis as well because Saul slash Paul is a between figure. He lives between two worlds. Now, I don't know if you remember, but all the way back when we talked about David, when we talked about the story of David and Goliath, we talked about David as a between figure as well. In the story of David and Goliath, he's a between figure because he goes back and forth from the battlefield to the pasture, back and forth. And, and he's a nurturer, but he's also a warrior. You know, there's these things that happen. And when you think about the stories that you really like, there are some characters who are maybe not the central character of the story, but they're between figures. Uh, and a good example is like Star Wars. It's really kind of a Luke Skywalker story, right? But Han Solo is the between figure where he's the one who kind of lives in a little bit of a seedy world and he knows his way around criminals and stuff like that. But he's the one that makes it happen and he has a conversion and he becomes a really important good guy who facilitates, well, I don't want to give it away, but something happens to the Death Star. There's that kind of a thing. So many times in the stories that, that you love, there's the central character, but there's also this between figure who lives in two worlds, who makes it happen or facilitates it in some way. And we see that kind of a thing in the story of uh, Saul slash Paul. Paul takes Christianity, which is a Jewish concept. Remember, Jesus and the disciples, they're Jewish. They're talking about uh, uh, living up to a Jewish tradition, right? They're speaking to Jewish people. It's amazing how many times I have to repeat, Jesus was Jewish. You know that, I know that, but there's a lot of people who, who don't know it or don't want to deal with it, but it's very true. But Paul comes along, and he takes these Jewish ideas, and he, marketing is the wrong word, but he, he makes them accessible, let's say, to a Greek world, a Hellenistic world. He uses the, the philosophy and the, the social uh, learning the cultural understandings that he has as a Greek citizen to make these Jewish ideas accessible to a much larger audience. He starts the churches, he does these things, but he's this between figure in a lot of really important ways. It's almost as if there's a little bit of a trinity there where someone like David represents tradition. Jesus Christ represents the heart and the teachings and, and the way. And then Paul represents the element that you need, the, the execution and the promotion, let's say. You got tradition, you got the divine spark, you got the execution. And in a way, you need all three things. Think about your own life. There might be many, many times when what you're missing is an understanding of where you've been. And maybe that's why you keep repeating the same goofy situation over and over again. Maybe you need a little bit more tradition in your life. Understand where you've been. 
It might be that you feel dead inside and nothing's happening because you're not connecting with that divine spark. Or it might just be that you're just completely sitting still, even though you have a deep feeling inside, you know where you've been, you're not doing anything about it. You need uh, a little bit of all three things in your life. Paul represents the element that you need in order to change your world. In other words, what you need is a conversion experience. Now, I don't seem like the kind of guy that would talk about conversion a lot. I don't talk about making converts very much and stuff like that. So let me be as clear as I can. I'm not interested in converting you to my way of thinking. I'm not interested in, in having you sign up a thing and join a thing and, and, and exclude another thing. You know me better than that. But what I am interested in is converting people to the idea that they have a relationship with something bigger than them. Of converting people to the idea that freedom is a choice, like I say, that, that love is possible, that there's a way. Converting people to the idea of hope. Let's just start there. I don't need you to hope for the same things as I am. I just need you to hope. That's the kind of conversion that I'm talking about. And it might be that if you're feeling stuck in your life, what you need is to convert to something. And this is your story, if that's the case. This is your story. So let's go through the story. Once again, Acts 9, 1 through 19, super short. As the story begins, we understand that Saul, his name is Saul at this point, is a, uh, a critic and, in fact, a persecutor of the Christians. He's a super smart guy. He's been to school. He knows how to debate. He knows how to argue. He knows how to convince. He's probably the smartest guy in the room in any given room that he is, and he knows it, and he knows what to do about it. And he uses that incredible skill set to persecute the early Christians. Remember, this is a very small group. Uh, they call themselves followers of the way, which I love. They don't even call themselves Christians yet. But uh, Paul is there to put them in their place, to defend mainstream Judaism from this weird Christian uh, cult that's going on, uh, to do what he can for that. One of the things that we know about Saul is that he is there for the stoning of Stephen. And Stephen is the, uh, recorded as the first Christian martyr and all of that. But it's really interesting. Um, you can go, go a little bit before this story that we're talking about today and read a little bit more about Stephen. But what you need to know right now is that Stephen, in many ways, is the Christian version of, or a shadowy Christian reflection, let's say, of what Paul is. They have a lot in common. They're both incredibly devout. They both are willing to put it all on the line for what they feel and what they know and what they believe. And Stephen so much so that he won't uh, go back on his beliefs even though he's up against the death penalty. Now that sounds familiar, right? So we just had Easter. But so uh, Stephen is stoned to death. And we read in Scripture that Saul is there for that. And in fact, Saul says, hey, let me hold your coats, guys, so you have a good range of motion. Take those jackets out. Let me hold the jackets while you throw rocks at this guy. And he's more or less just come from that event where Stephen is stoned to death. And like I said, Paul and Stephen have a lot in common. Shadowy reflection. Because one of the things that Stephen does is he feeds people. 
He's always given food and money to the poor, to the hungry, and that kind of stuff. One of Paul's things, or Saul, I should say, one of Saul's things is that he takes away from people. Stop doing that. Saul is a very much a stop emphasis. Uh, Stephen is a very much of a let's make this work emphasis at the beginning of things. But they have so much in common. Saul decides to go to Damascus, and he tells his, uh, his superiors that uh, he's like, I'm going to go to Damascus, and on the way, if I find any of those weirdo Christians, I'm going to round them up. That's what I'll do. If I find any, the scripture says, any followers of the way, you know, I'll get them in headlock, I'll bring them on with me to Damascus, we'll lock them up. And a lot of people have supposed, it doesn't say this in the scripture, but a lot of people think that there's something that changes right before Saul decides to go on this trip to Damascus. It's almost as if there's a shift in the tone of what we read about Saul. And like I said, it doesn't say it. Feel free to read it differently. But a lot of people read it this way, that, that something happens. There's a tone shift right after the stoning of Stephen, right before the trip to Damascus. And some people have supposed, and I read this this way too. It makes sense to me. Some people have supposed that Saul wasn't really thinking about his mission at that point. It looks like, it seems like, it, it, it feels like Saul wasn't thinking about his mission. Saul was thinking about Stephen. Because what we just found out from that stoning experience, as ghastly as that is, is that Saul is at peace with God, at peace with his mission, secure in the knowing that, look, I don't know what you guys are going to do to me, but I'm okay. Stephen is at peace. Saul is not. And I, I have to believe and like I said, I'm not the only one that reads it this way. I have to believe that that must have affected someone so smart, so driven as Saul. So here's Saul on the road to Damascus. And the Bible says, a light from heaven shone on Saul. And I don't know what you think of when you, when you read that kind of a thing, a light from heaven. I mean, maybe we're influenced by sort of the, the Christmas story. There's this manger moment and there's this light from, from, uh, from the sky and it's so beautiful and so calming and you know that everything's going to be okay and all that. But knowing what we know about Saul, knowing what we know about this journey, I have to feel like it's probably a little bit of a different experience of light. To me, it seems like that moment when you fall asleep in the car and you get to where you're going to go and somebody opens the door and that light shines and you know you got to put your shoes on and go in. That light that maybe the police officer shines in the window when you've been going a little too fast. That light when it's closing time at the bar and you got to go. That light. It's probably more like that kind of an experience. Think about uh, Saul's level of receptivity to anything but his own ego at this moment. His mission as he wants to understand it versus what it really is. That kind of a thing. And I say that because I want you to know that one of the th threads that we see throughout Scripture is that the divine does not appear to you according to what's comfortable for you. 
It appears to you according to what you're ready for, but it doesn't necessarily represent a comforting moment. A lot of times that, that emphasis, that message, that voice of the divine is you've got to change something and change can be unpleasant for some people. I want to say that again, change can be unpleasant because I just got done telling you that what you probably need is a conversion. What you probably need is a change, right? And maybe you were there with me for that. But I need you to know that that doesn't mean it's always going to be smooth sailing. It's not for Saul. In fact, most of the time in the scripture, it's not easy. It has to happen. And it's always beautiful in the end. But it's not always easy. It's interesting that a lot of the heroes that we think about in scripture, as well as in all the stories that we tell, go through their change experience, kicking and screaming in one way or the other. I want, I want you to know that it's okay if you feel that way too. It doesn't make you less of a child of God. It makes you pretty normal. But just know, change is going to come. So there's this light, the light of the, the, the flashlight in the sky you know how fast you were going? That light says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And it's interesting that the, what, what Saul says in response. Now, I use the NASB translation, but most of them say something like this. Saul's response to that, why are you persecuting me? Saul says, who are you, Lord? And it's easy to breeze right by that because, okay, I get it. He, I'd ask, who, you, who are you too? You know, who's shining the light? That kind of a thing. But think about the fact that Saul says, who are you, Lord? Little message there. Nothing in Scripture is by accident. Remember, as we've said many times, every single word was thought about and loved and sometimes fought for, right? So Saul says, who are you, Lord? And, and I have to believe that there's a little teeny teaching moment there. And that teaching moment is, even education and experience and an ego bias and whatever that is designed for, let's say, hostility, if you go all the way with something, if you take all the classes, if you give your whole heart to something, if you really believe and let yourself get all the way in, if you jump in at the deep end, you might not get where you need to go, but you will get to a place of receptivity. Even Saul, in his closed-minded state, recognizes on some level that it's the Lord talking. This is a big deal. What I'm trying to say is give yourself to your journey. With an open mind and an open heart, go all the way with it. No middle sliders, no half steps. Go all the way with it. And it will at least put you to the place where you can Know it when you see it. I've had times in my life where I knew that something had to give, something had to change, I needed something to happen, but I didn't know what. I've had times in my life where I just felt so, so up in the air that I didn't even know what to pray for. You ever feel that way? I have. And what has come to me in those moments is, when I don't know what to pray for, what has come to me in those moments is, God, may I know it when I see it. That's my version, my, uh, my uh, humble version of what Solomon said when he said, Father, grant in me an understanding heart. 
God, may I know it when I see it. So I don't have to learn it the hard way. May I know it when I see it. And that is the place where Saul is in this story. He says, Lord, who are you? I know it's God. I know it's something divine. But I need more. Who? What? How does this work? Oh, that's a beautiful moment. And basically, the response is, Saul, I'm Jesus, and I got a job for you to do. Now, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but frankly, not much. Now, remember, we have said that there are some threads that go throughout the Bible. There are some big teachings that we can pick out and put in our pocket that happen over and over again. And one of the things that I have said to you, maybe every week, but at least very, very frequently, you know that it's God talking because it gives you a job to do. And I'll, I'll repeat it because this is important. This is a big lesson for all of this. So many times people say, how do I know if it's God talking versus, you know, what I want to have happening? And people pray or they do, I don't know, tarot cards or they flip a coin or they look at numerology and they do the thing. And so often they come out with the, the thing they already wanted. You know, you look at your astrology uh, column, you look at the horoscopes and it says, you're a caring person and you should go ahead and do that thing, right? So often people interpret the message based on what their ego wants anyway. How do I know then? How do I know what the real message is? Once again, we see it over and over again in the Bible and you see it definitely here. You know it's God talking. You know it's a divine message when it gives you a job to do, when it causes you to step out of your comfort zone, when it gives you a mission that's beyond what you already thought. If it pulls you, if it stretches you, it's probably the thing you ought to do. If it keeps you small and cloistered and, let's say, comfortable, that's probably your ego. That's how you can tell the difference. So the voice says, I'm Jesus, and I got a job for you. And in that moment, Saul can't see. The Bible says that he's, he's blind. All of a sudden, he can't see anything. And the Bible says that he, he fasts. He knows that he's been in the presence of something divine. He doesn't know what it is. He, he doesn't know what to do, but it's, a, it's the tradition. It's the, it's the thing you do to go, okay, this was a, a spiritual moment. I'm going to do some spiritual fasting. That's a spiritual practice I can do. And there's a lesson there, too. It has to do with paying attention to your inputs. You know what I mean? Sometimes you have to take a moment. Okay, I've been touched by the divine. Do I want to keep feeding myself the same, same stimulus that has kept me where I am? Maybe it's time to fast from Candy Crush on your phone or the same four sitcoms that you watch over and over again or the Downton Abbey Marathon, as great as that is. Maybe it's time to take a break. When you know that something has happened, that... that, that reveals to you your own blindness. Maybe it's time to take a break. And that's what Paul does. Paul is uh, taken to a safe place, but he's not eating and he can't see anything. Cut to a different scene. There's this Christian prophet. His name is Ananias. And uh, we don't know a lot about him. We know that he's one of the 70. Back in Luke 10, where Jesus speaks to the 70, and he says, go change the world, go help people, go do this thing. 
you know, go back and read that. Ananias is there for that. He's one of the 70. And uh, God appears to Ananias and says, look, I need you to go see Saul. I need you to go help him out. He needs a healing. Go pray with him. Go help him. Go teach him a thing or two. Um, go help. And Ananias, knowing that it's God, Ananias, who has been in the presence of Jesus Christ, Ananias, who, who knows his stuff and is willing to do anything. You know what he says? He says, I, I don't want to go there because Saul is a jerk. Paraphrasing. But you can imagine. You know, remember what we talked about when we talked about the story of Jonah. Sometimes the, the deal is that we have to help and teach and heal and be there for and support and encourage people who are doing it differently than us. People who we may not like, we are still called upon to love. That's a big deal. And that, again, is one of the cornerstones of the message we get throughout the scriptures. You know how Jesus felt about loving everybody. You know that, that in the Old Testament, the tradition of welcoming the stranger and being open is throughout. So it's no surprise that, that Ananias is called upon to go there. And so, finally, he does. Because for all his reluctance, Ananias knows that that's what we do. That's just what we do. That's just what we do. So he goes and he, he blesses Saul. And he prays with him. And, and he baptizes him that wonderful cleansing experience. And we haven't talked a lot about it, but that basic idea of washing away what is no longer true, that cleansing power that leaves only what is true. That's what baptism represents. And the Bible says that, quote, something like scales fell from his eyes. And he could see. Not just literally that he could find his way to the kitchen and get some snacks. He could see that he'd been hurting people. He could see that he used all those amazing powers of, of intellect and heart and learning and experience and everything else to do something egotistical, something negative, something divisive instead of inclusive. He could see for the first time. And not only can he see, but... He's not Saul anymore. His name has changed. He's Paul now. So many times in Scripture and in so many times in all kinds of literature that we read and stories that we tell, a name change represents a life change. Think about how Jacob becomes Israel in the Old Testament. Think about how many times that happens when there's an evolutionary step. We call it something different. We call you something different. I can't tell you how many times I have witnessed people who got out of a, an abusive relationship or came out of the closet or found some kind of a liberation and they realized who they really were and they felt such a pull to change their name. This is a big deal. Again, it's a teaching moment. You are allowed to be called what you wish to be called. And I say that because there's a lot of people watching this right now who think that they have to just put up with the baggage they got 
from their past, from their parents, from their upbringing, from their tradition, from their locality, from their economics, from the, oh, it's an exhausting list, right? You are allowed to be called something that reflects who you are on the inside instead of what happened to you on the outside. And in fact, it's something that every hero has to do in one way or the other. Remember, back in the Garden of Eden, what you name a thing, that's what it will be for you. Remember how important it was when Jesus talked to the disciples and he said, yeah, but who do you say I am? In other words, what name do you give this? Well, look in the mirror, my friends. What name do you give you? Is it miserable sinner? Is it worm of the dust? Is it overweight? Is it poor? Is it unloved? You have the power to choose your name. And new name means new life. That new eyes uh, relationship where the scales fall away means a, a new perception of reality. A new identity. Paul's conversion represents a change in perception and a change in identity. That's big. Think about this with me as far as how big that is. Ask yourself, when we think about change representing a change in perception and a change in identity, ask yourself, are you willing to let go of either one? That might sound silly, but I got to tell you, a lot of people come to pray with me and say, I want change in my life, but I don't want to change how I see people. I still want to hate the people that I hate. I still want to define myself by my credit score. I don't want to change my perception, and I don't want to change my identity. I still like these things about me. Well, it's okay to like things about you, but you know what I mean. If you want change in your life, you've got to be willing to change your perception, and that may require a change in identity, a change in what you identify with. What do you see out there, and what do you see in here? And if you can't do that, you're not going to get the change that you need. But Paul goes through that. Paul is now Paul. He's not Saul anymore. Paul is now an evangelist, a missionary, a teacher, an opener of churches. A proponent of the way, when before he was a persecutor. Paul becomes a bridge instead of a wall. And the rest, as they say, is history, although we're going to talk a lot more about Paul in the coming weeks. But this is the beginning of something really big. And there's a couple of really quick lessons that we can draw from all of this. And one of the things that I really want you to know, one of the things that you've probably already seen but I want to underline here, is that Everyone is an instrument. Everyone is a vessel of these teachings. The biggest bad guy in the story, and that's a pretty, uh, pretty good definition of what Saul was. Nobody else was making trouble for the Christians like Saul was. The biggest bad guy in your story may also be an instrument for your healing, a vessel for your lesson. That doesn't mean that we let abusers continue to abuse. Remember, Paul doesn't become helpful until he quits doing all the bad stuff, right? I'm not saying we don't stand up for what's right. Of course we do. But I am saying that we can't heal until we see everything as an avenue for healing. We don't put up with abuse. 
but we can look at that situation, that toxic relationship, as a teacher of one kind or another. And that can be really, really powerful. As Ananias learned, everyone deserves forgiveness. Everyone deserves healing. Everyone deserves power. Everyone deserves your love, even the person you don't want to go heal. This is something that Ananias learned. It's something that Jonah learned. It's something that we all learn. Jesus said, love your enemies. This is the deal. The third thing is do the best you can according to your consciousness. Do the best according to your consciousness and be open to expansion. This is what Saul does. He's doing his best according to a pretty cruddy uh, rule book. But doing the best according to his rule book allows him to open a new rule book. Do the best you can according to what you currently believe, according to what you currently know. And along the way, leave yourself open to turning the page. That's how Saul becomes Paul. As I said, Paul is required, so we see him as a messenger, a deliverer. But one of the things that I come back to all the time, and I want to leave you with this, is that this is a story about conversion. And when I hear that word conversion, I immediately go back to seminary. There was a, a, a theologian named Bernard Lonergan that we all had to read Lonergan stuff. Really important. Method and theology, all the kind of stuff he wrote. Really, really important. And I'm not expecting you to read that or even care about it, although it's wonderful. What I want you to know for the purposes of our conversation today is Lonergan describes conversion, religious conversion, as, and I quote, an otherworldly falling in love. If you ask somebody what it means to be a convert, what does it mean when you converted to something? Did you sign some stuff? Did they look at your, your, uh, your 1099s? What does that mean? Is it a blood type thing? Did you go through a ritual where you were dunked, sprinkled, super soakered? What happened? All of those things are wonderful, even if I make fun. They are wonderful, but that ain't it. Conversion is, as Lonergan said, that moment when you have an otherworldly falling in love. So let's break it down. If your life isn't working, you probably need a conversion. If you want a conversion, it means you have to fall in love with something, specifically another worldly falling in love. In other words, a love that's not defined by chemistry or biology or, or, or uh, financial concerns. A love that is defined by something even bigger. A love that is defined by that moment when you know it, when you see it, by that moment when you know when you're in love, when you see something so beautiful and you can barely breathe, you can barely see anything else. That's conversion. Can you do that? Maybe that seems like a lot. So let me boil all of that down. If you want your life to change, and change today, love something. Give yourself to that. Doesn't matter what it is. Love something. Love something so purely that you get your ego out of the way. Love something so purely that you leave yourself open to be lifted up by that love. And let it change you. Let it change your name. Let it change what you see. Let it change what you identify with. Let it set you free.
Because after all, freedom is a choice. Thank you. As always, I want to thank you for being here with me. I want to thank you for these chats that we have. I'm so grateful. I want to thank you for liking and subscribing and most of all for hitting that share button in the corner. It means so much when you just hit that button and share these videos on your Facebook wall, on your Twitter, on your Instagram. Just send an email to somebody. Tell somebody about it. Do that kind of thing. It means a lot. I want to remind you that we are planning our first in-person event for the last Saturday in May. That's May 29th, and it's going to be in the late afternoon, early evening. As I say this, we're working out some of the last-minute details, but that's the day. It's going to be here in St. Petersburg, Florida, the finest city on the face of the earth. We will film it and put it out on our YouTube channel a few days afterwards. But boy, oh boy, if you can be there live, it's going to be just wonderful. I can't wait to see you. It's going to be great. In the meantime, I want to remind you that your gifts of love and substance are what keep us going. So thank you for all of your financial support. Let's take those gifts and hold them in our minds and our hearts and share our offertory blessing together. God is my source, my unending supply. With this gift, I carry my gratitude into action. God's blessings flow through me and fill my world. I give and I live with radical joy. And so it is, and so it does. Amen. And as always, I, don't want, to, I want to remind you that wherever you are, you're not alone. Around here, we pray as a family. Let's share in our dedication. God, I'm ready for change. My heart is open. I'm not afraid anymore. My life is in peace and on purpose. Amen. Now go show the world what love looks like today. I'll see you next week. Hey, this is Dieter Randolph, and I just want to thank you for taking the time to listen to the lesson and hopefully for taking some time to apply what we talked about in your life. That's where this really happens. I love the idea that church isn't something that happens to you, but rather something that happens through you. What you do, based on what you've heard, can change your life and really change the world. This is just the beginning of a bigger journey. And if you want to continue your journey with us, I'd love for you to like and subscribe us on YouTube where you can watch the videos. Come join us in person. Our street address and all kinds of information is at our website, waterandstonechurch.com. All of that sort of thing. If you want to give electronically, that's where to do it. If you want to connect with us on social media, and you really should, do that there, waterandstonechurch.com. Thank you for being a part of this work.